Hi, listeners. Welcome to It's the People, our interview series where we explore the inside story of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. In this episode, my partner Randy Brandoff and I, Wills Hapworth, had the opportunity to interview Jason Sherman, who is the CEO of Taproom, which is a rapidly scaling enterprise software as a service platform that's taking the noise and complexity out of the insider's industry known as beer. We discussed a range of topics, including how at the early stage, regardless of what the legal docs say, it's a partnership business, the pros and cons of being a sole founder, how part of Taproom strategy is to provide value to all key stakeholders in the beer industry, where the beer industry is going, and much, much more. To start things off, Jason begins the conversation with his life story in 60 seconds. Before we begin, we'd like to note that this interview is for informational purposes only, and that the opinions expressed should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. TIA Ventures is a seed stage fund focusing primarily on early stage business-to-business technology companies with an obsessive focus on end customers and early teams. So, I mean, in the vein of how we kick these off, to the extent you can do it in 60 seconds, can you uh, share with us Jason Sherman's life story? Yeah, in 60 seconds, I can tell you my life story. Um, I grew up in Orlando, Florida. I big high school, went to Harvard undergrad, economics and math, went to Harvard Law School, um, immediately left law school to go join um, a large corporate law firm in Midtown, New York, Davis Polk and Wardwell, where I was working on mergers and acquisitions, big uh, acquisitions of mergers of big companies, um, one being... Um, when AB InBev, the world's largest beer company, bought the second largest beer company, Sap Miller, um, following that deal, which the combined company is one of the largest in the world or the largest in the world, I was asked to come and help start up the global venture arm that they were creating, um, and which later became in a few years, a 3000 person organization. We deployed about a billion dollars. And today it's called ZX Ventures. It's one of the leading corporate VCs in the CPG space and certainly in the alcohol space um, as a model that many other companies have been using. I left after having seen a lot of the issues we couldn't solve due to some regulations uh, in the US. I left to start Taproom, uh, which I've been doing since late 2018. Uh, we officially launched in 2019. Um, it's been quite a ride. Uh, and then now I'm the founder and CEO of that company. So I, I'm curious, you know, that, that time at ZX Ventures, you were there for three years. Is that right? Yep. Um, and you said, you know, there were things that we were seeing there that we couldn't do. Can you bring to life, like you had, you know, this career uh, that you could have had at Davis Polk and you left, and then you had a career that you could have had at AB InBev, and yet you saw something that called you to action that made you say, I'm going to go do something, go do the impossible, start a startup from zero to one. What was it that you identified there that you had such strong conviction in to want to go start Taproom and, and do this really difficult thing? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, it was really comes in twofold. One was the opportunity, the conviction around the opportunity, but also a little bit of trauma. Uh, around where I was. And I say a lot of entrepreneurs kind of go through similar moments when they jump out, but 
for me, it was, I had spent years then at AB InBet building up from scratch, a, a big organization that was investing in a lot of different areas. One was obviously e-commerce, which was at that time, a brand new distribution channel for alcohol brands, Budweiser, Stella, and Corona included. How do they reach people at home? It was brand new. Um, they were very afraid that e-commerce might take away their biggest asset, which was their ability to control what bars, restaurants, and supermarkets sold around the world. And they were worried e-commerce might eat into that. So we spent a lot of time and a lot of money around the world, China, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, uh, Canada, making sure that we were the leaders, even in this small emerging space, in the ability for people to order beer online. So if you're ordering beer online, you're probably buying from AB InBev in that period because we bought the assets, we built the assets, we, we grew companies, pouring capital at them to make sure we were controlling them. When it came to the US though, old laws were put in place that prevented us from doing that. And I remember very early on, I was there, it was actually like the first two weeks, I was in like a training at one of the breweries and they mentioned a license that existed in New York that was outlawed a long time ago that would allow us to do e-commerce here in New York, at least as a brewery. And I remember at, thinking to myself, like, why are we not doing that? And the truth was no one was thinking about it. No one was thinking about e-commerce at that time. And then I dug in a little further and the truth was AB InBev couldn't do it, but it would open up doors for brands like AB InBev to work with just one partner to sell online very easily, which no one had done before. And so the opportunity was always kind of in the back of my head. Like this is an interesting license to make it very easy for beer brands to get online in New York, very easy. Never really did much with the idea for a while until I was there, the, the ZX Ventures started growing, became very large became very institutional. They started bringing in old AB InBev executives, which they used to be ex-entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and innovative minds um, into more corporate bureaucracy. Um, they cut the budgets for investing significantly. Um, and at the very end, I was working on a project um, called Beerbox, which was a vending machine for, for beer coming out of a vending machine would open it when it came out. I was actually in Vegas supporting the, one of the launch events at the Route 91 Festival. And I was uh, sadly there when the bullets started raining down uh, during one of the worst mass shootings in American history. And I remember being there with my colleagues, actually my wife now there, who was not my wife, was my colleague at the time, was there as well. And we were like running for our lives. And I remember thinking like, what, what are we doing here at that moment? I was like, this is, I'm, I'm literally gonna die for this company. Um, it was a little of that trauma that really pushed me over the edge that I was like, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm give this a shot. This is a huge opportunity. AB InBev can't do this. I've seen this work in other countries. I've seen this work for big brands. I strongly believe that at that time, 0.2% of all beer online was being sold online. All beer was being sold online. I really believe that was going to grow to 5, 10, 15%. And if I could establish a platform that made it very easy for every beer brand to sell online, I could insert myself into a very fast growing space that I already had sort of the basic tools to accomplish. Uh, that was a lot of confidence back then, but that was really what led me with the conviction, a little combo of opportunity and trauma there. So you, I mean, you, you articulated, you know, Harvard Law to Davis Polk before AB InBev. You have a unique legal background for a technology founder. And you're in a space that's, you know, guided or, or, or controlled by, you know, the three-tiered legal system in the States. Do you think it's because of your legal background that you saw and had the confidence to attack this opportunity? 
Um, in addition to the motivations and being, you know, in, in, in an interesting place at a, at a crazy time, you know, it, it, was it, is it the legal background that put you over the edge? And have you found having that legal background to be, I think, a benefit or a hindrance or, or somewhere in the middle in this journey once you launch Capper? Oh, well, definitely a benefit. If we're going to start at the end, definitely a benefit. I think the legal background allowed me to have the confidence to do things a traditional entrepreneur entering a regulated space would feel very uncomfortable doing. They would not have the, uh, have the ability to really make the moves I wanted to make without running it by a significant legal team, by and large, who may not have the answers. So if you went and go look at the regula regulations around alcohol in any state, there's no talk of e-commerce. There's no talk about digital ordering. There's no talk about how do you run digital ads for a brand. You know, it's all spoken as if it was the 1920s. So a, a beer brewer cannot give money to a tavern to have that tap handle in their bar. You can't do that. That's not allowed. But how does that apply to online sales? Right? That also means that a beer brewer probably can't give money to a beer store to promote their product online. Maybe. The only way to get that answer is to have some confidence in your ability to read those regulations, read how the space is going, understand what the laws are doing and the laws are changing, and then just go ch take a leap of faith, right? There is gray area here for sure. And things are changing rapidly and there always are. I would have a hard time believing if you weren't a lawyer in my space, you could even get to this stage without a lot of legal dollars being spent. So it was a big value out in the early days. I think now probably the legal education has not been all that helpful anymore. I think it was a good as the upstart at this stage. Um, it's more of a mindset. I think being a lawyer allows me to be relatively analytical uh, in what's going on, make pretty rational, reasonable decisions. I think a lot of great entrepreneurs come from legal backgrounds. A lot of VCs come from legal backgrounds. I, I can think a little bit more in the, in the step A to step B gets to C. Then I think a lot of, um, more of the processizing or visionary type entrepreneurs. I'm much more um, taking everything, putting it together and coming up with outcomes. I think that's been a big asset to me. Um, but otherwise in a regulated space, being a lawyer is, is a big advantage. And this opportunity would never have come about if I wasn't analyzing this license that was outlawed in the seventies that no one would have ever heard of, understanding what that license could do, talking to the state liquor authority and make sure I could do what I was doing. You probably wouldn't have the, um, the knowledge to make that work unless you, you had some legal background. You know, now that you're kind of, in your words, maybe the legal background isn't quite as helpful now, or were there, you know, are there downsides to your kind of historical professional training that you're seeing now? And if you could kind of like change or add a skill, is there something that you'd like to matrix style? If I could only, no Kung Fu, right? Like, yeah, I think because I was an M&A and venture capital lawyer, I had seen a lot of the horror stories of when we were making investments at ZX Ventures and AB InBev, and we would have terms and maybe those companies were falling apart. Maybe they're doing very well. And maybe we weren't the best investors or maybe one of the other investors weren't the best investors. I had seen a lot of bad things happen based on literally words in contracts. Um, so I think I was much, 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 much more careful than I probably needed to be when it came to negotiating terms on deals, making sure the cap table was structured in a way, instead of really partnering with the right people, I often was much more focused on the legal nuances of how that structure would come about. 
which is, I think hurt me in the long run. Um, I think there were a lot of great potential investors or partners or that would have come on board if I was a little less like nervous about, oh, what if this happened, this happened, this happened. Um, I've overcome a lot of that now, but I think in those early days, I was much more thinking always about the downside. What would happen if this went wrong? You could stop me from this and this and this. Or, you know, this note is structured so that it matures in 12 months. Like what happens in 12 months if you end up just taking all the common shares or something? And like, I was thinking too much like that and not, okay, these are great people. And the end of the day, if this works for me, it's going to work for them. We're going to, we're going to build together. End of the day, this is a partnership business. This is not, this is not these are too small of businesses for the laws to really, or the contracts to really come into play. Uh, when we get to the billion dollar business, that's a different issue. Today, we're really just, just working together to build. I'm smiling because I'm thinking about some of the conversations we've had with our council and they're really smart and they kind of help us see around corners. But sometimes, you know, to your point, this is a partnership business at the stage where we're getting involved is I think such a great way to frame it. Like it almost doesn't matter quite what's in writing. I mean, sure. Like, you know, the 80, you know, the, there are important things, but on the margins, it's not all that essential. Yeah. So anything that you'd like to remove right now from your, like it, it, I'd, I'd be more effective if only I didn't have this thing about me. Be more effective. I didn't have this thing about this, me. This quality, this attribute, this, you know, and maybe you already said it. It's like, I thought too much about the downside, but. Yeah. I do think I, um, I think I thought too much about the downside. But I also, when I see an opportunity, I tend to run to it very quickly. Um, and I get very excited when little, little success is shown about the potential for being a big success, especially if I've thought through the downside and said, the downside is minimal, but the upside can be very high if we just move very quickly. And I think I have this bias to action that maybe I would at this stage probably control a little bit better, think through a little bit better. A lot of times, that bias action is let's let's hire very quickly. Let's pour resources at it. Let's build this to make it work instead of maybe thinking through a little bit more about the timeline required to make that happen, getting the capital ahead of time to make that work instead of doing it a forefront, maybe uh, making sure that the right people are involved instead of just, we need this role. Let's just fill it. Getting the right people in those roles uh, can make a much bigger difference than having many of those people in the same role. Um, I think at this stage, it's, it might even be slow down a little bit. Uh, when I see a good idea, I think I have this, this need to jump. I think mm -hmm. I, if I had to pull it back over the last three years, I would pull it back a little faster. I think I made some pretty quick decisions that had big impacts that at the time did not think they would have as big an impact as they ended up having. And they, they maybe still remain or we had to cut them and it, it was very costly mistakes made. Entrepreneurship is definitionally a resource constrained environment. And so yeah, prioritization is a huge factor in it. So learn, you learn that by fire and it sounds like you are and you have, and that's great. Definitely um, learning a lot by fire. That's true. <laughs> that is. <laughs> so speaking of learning by fire, you recently had a child. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so Thank we're you. adding that to an already full plate. And, you know, in addition to the legal background, which is unique, but obviously beneficial, particularly in this situation. You know, we all met entrepreneurs who scream type A, you know, everything about them externally is type A. You, you know, read on the surface as less type A, more type B, which I relate to very much. So it's, 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 it's something, you know, I, I get and it resonates, but it's, 
not maybe slightly atypical like the legal background you know what is going on inside that may not be obvious that has you you know that you focus on and and that has you obsessed with making tap room a success yeah i think my my entire style of of building this business has been actually empowering talent and if you look at the company i spent all day thinking about who are the right people at the company that have the raw skills or maybe be green or like they don't know what they're doing they've done it before or they maybe are minimum wage or lower but what are the raw skills that we could place them in or teach them or grow them into quickly to be successful and almost that's been the way i think about things i'm not like type a about like you know have we paid the excise taxes this week or you know let's pay that contract in $19 instead of $18 you know or you know let's squeeze the margin by 0.5% now it's that's never been um how i've have i've gone about it i I'm able to just empower people to make those calls. And if you look at the teams here, everyone's an owner of projects, everyone's the owner of a department, they are empowered to do it and they have the trust to make it work. Um, and most of them started at the bottom or pretty close to the bottom. Um, most of them have just shown incredible acumen for hitting targets, for achievement, for work ethic, um, for understanding the culture that we have built. And then they themselves empowering people below them to grow and be bigger. And so when it comes to like the type B personality, it's it's really for me it's you know I have my family who I'm also empowering and in love and want to build up, but also, you know, my taproom family which is really the people there who I I want to put into positions to be bigger and better no matter what happens to taproom. Hopefully they can leave being like I've grown so much while I've been here. I've learned so much. I've had so much more power and so much more responsibility. I've I'm able to have so much more impact solely because we helped them get there. And, and that's that's been how I, how I've uh, managed all sides of of my life and the business at the same time. Jason, I'm curious on this cuz we we work with entrepreneurs who in some cases live the pain that they're solving for in their business. Um they just saw something in their own life where it was like, wow, there has to be a better way. Part of what I'm hearing from you is like Yes, you saw this opportunity while you were at ABM Bev. You got really curious about, you know, this kind of like it's it sounded like this single single license that kind of started to like take you down the rabbit hole. But if I'm right in hearing this, the the itch that you scratch daily that kind of keeps you coming back to Taproom is the ability to empower the rest of the team. Um, or like enable people is it, am I right in that? So like, where does that come from? I would from? say those are uh, actually bifurcated. So they're almost two different considerations. I, you know, when it came to living the problem um, at ABMBev, I acquired the first hard kombucha brand in the country, kombucha. Acquired the first Spike Spelter brand. Uh, Spike Selter was what it was called. Today it's Bonham V. They had to change the name. It was such a bad name. And we did all kinds of craft beer deals. We had global deals. Most elite, most of what we would do is put them in a container and ship them to a country like the UK. And we would give them to our e-commerce partner, Beerhawk in the UK, and say, hey, send this around the country, see if anybody likes heart kombucha. And if they did, we would then approach our distributor in the UK and say, hey, distributor, heart kombucha is blowing up on Beerhawk. We just opened up a website for kombucha. We know this thing is working online. You need to go push this into bars, restaurants, and supermarkets. So we had, I had seen this work and we had done this. And sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes we had to pull out of that country. We would send container, a whole bunch of stuff. In the U.S., we were trying to do that. And so we started off by first having to convince a distributor in every city. 
these are the Anheuser-Busch old distributors, to take hard kombucha on. They didn't know what it was. No one had heard the word kombucha in their whole lives. These are hundred-year-old businesses run by old white families that August Bush III handed over the keys to for those regions, right? Got these keys, and they said, I don't, I don't want to do this, right? It doesn't make any sense. But if we could convince them, then we had to convince a few beer stores to take this hard kombucha on. They've never heard of it. And once we did that, we then didn't really know what to do. So we, we said, we said to a few models, we said, Drizzly, let's, let's try this, where we're going to give you money, Drizzly, to connect to those three beer stores, send them orders from Drizzly, and you're going to put kombucha on the front page. And that was the only legal way we could sell online at the time, was by giving Drizzly money. Remember, we can't give money to the beer stores. We still had to convince distributors to take the product, if they even would. And then Drizzly could give some money to promote it. And then Drizzly would send orders to those three beer stores saying, go buy kombucha. And that was one city live online. That took a year and a half for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was living that because I was working with those e-commerce teams, trying, they had targets that they all missed. You know, they could not hit these targets. It was impossible. So we started making up metrics for how we would hit targets, including double counting Drizzly revenue as our own revenue and all kinds of wild metrics. But in the end of the day, the problem persisted, which was if you were a brand trying to get online, the steps you had to take were really bad. And then it just got worse because Drizzly was sending orders, even for Bud Light, where we were sending tons and tons of traffic to Drizzly. And I, I don't mean to single out Drizzly, Minibar, Instacart, Uber Eats, these were all the same. Uh, Stassi, uh, Thirsty, these guys were all the same, which was they were just sending orders to thousands of these beer stores. Even for Bud Light, we we're sending tons of traffic to them. And the order would get sent to these beer stores, but 42% of the time is what we found. That product wasn't actually even in stock. So the mm -hmm. beer store would call and say, hey, would you like Coors Light or Miller Light instead? Right, And that's really, really bad uh, when you're talking about spending money as a Bud Light. So I was living this problem, both as the biggest beer company in the world, trying to trying to push Bud Light online all the way down to this little company we just acquired, Kombrucha, trying to get them online. I saw both sides of this problem. And that was when I, and I knew it worked because we were doing in the UK or we're doing in other countries, the same model I'm trying to replicate here. I am replicating here. We knew it works from a, from a customer demand side. We knew it works from the brand side. We just had to put the pieces together. And that's where the license was sort of the missing piece. It was like, let's get this license so we can build around that. That was the missing piece to make it work. The problem was was readily identified for, for a long time. Gotcha. And then I guess when it came to empowering people, that's how I ended up bringing the platform to life, was that I could not do this on my own, was to build a team of people around me that could help. You know, everyone had things that were great at that I, at this point, I'm not good at anything. I really make sure everyone else are better than I am at every single part of the roles. Um, and empowering them to be that good at each piece is how this platform has really come to life. Gotcha. So you saw the opportunity and I think you'd say it's, it was clear as day and, and you, and you know, you were right. You have built the team, empowered people that, you know, they're growing around you. What is, I mean, ex, it always comes down to execution, but what has been the most frustrating piece of it so far? Is it, is it just generally speed? Is it finding and retaining talent? Is it something involving technology? What's, you know what you know exactly where you're headed and you're trying to get there as fast as possible what's been frustrating you frustrating those efforts yeah the biggest frustration is generally for me how fast or how slow to be moving at any given time and it is always this balance i think you, you were mentioning you're always capital constrained but that means in theory you're always kind of burning money to grow you know and every day that goes by is dollar spent so you want to move quickly 
to to keep going so that there's because time is a valuable asset but at the same time you don't want to move too fast where you actually mess something up or you don't have the right people in place the right teams in place to actually accomplish what you're trying to do or maybe you don't even have enough capital to keep growing that quickly and so that balance between we want we know we have a great idea we know it's working we found product market fit at least in a small part of the business how fast do we need to keep going or how slow do we need to keep going to show ourselves, show the market, show the business, but even show the investor base that this is the right path to go. I think that's been constant battle between we're going too fast, let's slow down, or we're going too slow, let's speed up. And a lot of that comes as a result of seeing the revenue trends maybe a little bit in different areas of business, but a lot of it comes from how much capital do we have at our disposal. And a lot of those decisions are hard to make. And I think that's been the biggest struggle um, from the beginning was, I think if I were to do it again, you know, COVID really rocked us. Like it was a massive growth moment, but in a perfect world, there was no COVID actually. And we would just kind of grow in a nicer kind of clip. Um, and I think uh, we've had moments even now where we're just like accelerated like crazy recently over the last eight months. We're just blowing up. I think the team definitely feels the pressure. It's like, we should keep going because it's working. We have all this inbound demand, but at the same time, we don't want to, we don't want to lose customers. We don't wanna, we don't want the product to suffer. We want to make sure that we have enough resources in order to keep growing at this clip. And there might be a world where we slow down just to solidify our base of paying customers who are doing really well, give them the attention they need, build the product around them, and then accelerate again. That could be a reality. And I think it's that balance that we've always struggled with as a company. If we were to, you talk about decision-making, if we were to kind of peek into Jason's brain and try to understand his kind of process around how he makes decisions, what might we see? Like, is it you in a room meditating on really key decisions, maybe two that you have to make a month, or is it like, how do you, how do you think through and then make really important decisions and prioritize? Yeah, big important decisions. I try and get the input. We have, I have three executives at the company. Um, product lead, operations lead, and uh, finance, uh, sorry, operations finance lead, and then a revenue and sales lead. And the three of them all come from different backgrounds. They're all working in different areas of the business and they all have different perspectives on growth of the business. Obviously in the finance and ops world, it's much more conservative, right? They're much more careful with spend. Every, every dollar is, is important because they're thinking through dollars every day. The revenue side, all they're doing is growing and growth is everything. And they just want to grow no matter what. On the product side, they'd like us to be, they want to be building so that it's easier for all this to happen instead of, you know, kind of in between. And so I tend to get different perspectives from all three of them before making a decision. We talk uh, every day, uh, you know, each one of them, and we have all hands meeting the four of us on Mondays where we go through really important decisions. The truth is, at the end of the day, I am a solo founder. You know, a lot of this comes down to, you know, they say it a lot, which is the four of us will vote on something and Jason gets veto power. Um, and that's how decisions are often made. You know, it is, it is in the other day, someone's got it, the buck kind of stops with me. I've got to make a call and by and large, it's taking the inputs that I receive from the three of them or the wider company, the reports receive and making a gut call. Uh, and it's still at that stage. I, I don't know if that'll change anytime soon, but it's still this reactionary opportunity in front of you, information received about that opportunity. Now I've got to make a call. Does this make sense? And there's a lot of bad decisions made. And I have to own up to that too. But hopefully the good ones outweigh the bad ones over time. I mean, this is like a perfect segue to a question that's been on, you know, that I was hoping to ask, which is you are a sole founder. You have some key executives. You have an amazing team that you've enabled. 
like without thinking too long and hard, what are the pros and cons of being a sole founder of Taproom? It's hard for me to really gauge it too much because I've never been a co-founder, I guess, yeah. like a direct co-founder in a team of three or four. I, I can say things can move very quickly when you're a sole founder. You're able to make decisions very fast if needed, whether they be good ones or bad ones. You are still making them very quickly because the amount of back and forth and negotiation on things that may be 50-50 or maybe just kind of on the line, sometimes you just need someone to make a call, especially in a fast-moving, crazy environment. The I would say that's that's a big positive to being a sole founder. I think the big negative is something I never really wanted, but you end up kind of being um, uh, almost uh, the company looks to you for the inspiration more than they, more than you would probably, I would have expected. So the, the tone, the vision, they're always looking to see my reactions to things. You know, I'm setting the example. I think that has been a little bit surprising. I don't know if that's a con necessarily, but I think it's not something I certainly expected. And it's something I've learned over time. Every word I say sentences, I want to say they start, it, it becomes, they look to me to be the leader. Um, whereas I think if there was a bigger team, there might be three or four leaders. It's not just on that. You know, there's just not just one person that is carrying that load of visionary leader who's going to drive the ship in the right direction. There's a team of people, almost more democratic style that are doing that together. And I, I, don't, I still don't know if that's good or bad, but at the same time, it is a, a weight that it probably does not happen uh, amongst a co-founding team. You think you're there leaning into, you know, what you just said, you guys are, you know, doing, you know, going to go through your series A in short order. Do you think you're there where the, the company's ready to have a second, third, fourth voice? Or do you think that comes later still? Absolutely. I mean, I've said this a lot. I would really love uh, the team now to be the second, third, fourth voices that, you know, or bring in some of those voices. I think there's a lot going on at the business. Um, you know, there's, there's only so many hours in my day uh, and so many hours in our executive days. I think we are, we have a big vision for what we want to achieve. It's a good one. It's working, but the reality is we're going to need serious help to make it happen. And, and those extra voices are going to, are going are required. Not, not just, not just, you know, a good idea. They're necessary uh, to get us where we need to be. I think that, Big vision comment is probably a good segue to uh, finally talking about Taproom itself. Um, could you, for all you know, the people that wind up listening here, can you kind of give us the 60 second pitch that I'm sure is ingrained in your muscle memory at this point? Like what is Taproom? Yeah, Nikki, Taproom is just a platform, primarily a software platform that makes it very easy for beer and hard seltzer and other malt based beverages to sell online from their websites mostly, but also from other marketplaces. And what Taproom does very well is we cut out all the noise of the alcohol industry. If you were starting a beer brand, I was mentioning, Rich, if you're starting a beer brand, it takes a long time to go through the gatekeepers, which are the distributors, the beer stores, the bars, the restaurants, Drizzly, Minibar, Uber Eats, get online. We do all of that. So in, in one phone call, or sorry, signing up online, you could have a website created in, in less than 12 hours that sells your product. You get product to our fulfillment centers. We'll place the orders. We'll pass you through distribution. Within a week, you could be live online shipping across the country. That's unheard of. It's very, very fast and very, very accurate. You know, our, our, I was talking mentioning that 
of the time you order a beer online today, there are mispicks and damages and substitutions and delays. We're closer to 99%, 98.5%. And that's because we're very good on the software that we've built, the workflows we've built, the operations we've built. Um, so beer brands have a lot of confidence when they pl someone places an order from their website, that order gets sent to either our fulfillment center in New York or a third-party fulfillment center across the country that use our software. And that order gets delivered on time and accurately. Um, and if they, these brands want to get live in the new cities, they can do it very quickly. So those combinations of the pieces, that's really taproom in a nutshell. We're really trying to build a massive platform to do that by being the big distributor in every state and every city, by empowering these beer stores to become very powerful fulfillment centers for us and receiving all the orders from all the beer stores around the, or all the beer brands around the world. I, I really appreciate kind of some of the keywords that I heard through there. So you started by saying we're a platform and then mostly a software platform. And then you got into some of the complexities around actually being able to do these really hard things, right? Like the end consumer has certain expectations these days around speed, accuracy. You talked about kind of accuracy challenges with the existing models out there. Um, what are like some of the hardest things or hardest problems that you're having to solve to be able to be this platform, largely software platform that cuts out all the noise of this kind of very yeah. complicated, archaic industry? There are two big problems. One I addressed, which is the accuracy level of delivery of these beer stores around the country delivering beer, especially the long tail, you know, the 26,000 beer brands in the country. Most of those, if you try and order on Drizzly are not going to be in stock, no matter what you do by most, I mean, 99% of them, the top, maybe 15 are always around, but most of them are never there That's really inaccurate. So, so that's a big problem. The beer stores don't know how to manage inventory. Well, especially most of the long tail of them, the 10,000 of them, you know, the 9,500 have no idea how to manage inventory. Big issue, they don't know how to do delivery. They don't know how to pick and pack an item into a box or into a bag accurately. And they don't know how to input their, um, their routing instructions, the delivery instructions into a system in any form. So we built a software that allows for all of that amongst select retailers who do that very well in every city in the country. Right? So solving for that inaccuracy is, is crucial because if someone is ordering from a brand's website, they need to make sure they're getting it, right? This is the Amazon has created this expectation where you don't need to check if it's arriving, it's going to arrive. And that needs to be the same for the beer industry as well. The second big complication that we're solving for is the distributors in the way of getting to beer stores. So I was mentioning in order to get online, you first need to find a distributor in every city and every state that will carry your product. We can act as that distributor for all of our brands and get those products live online fast. Right? And that's a big problem we're solving. No, one, no one's ever really thought to use the distributor as just pure pass-through to get products online. We're doing that very successfully. We're also able then to deliver those products to any bar, restaurant, or supermarket that order those products. It's a big part of our business today. It's just bars, restaurants, supermarkets, just like consumers at home can order those products from our platform, just like anybody else. Thank you for that, you know, going into the details of the major problems you're solving. I, I'm curious, because you touched on it a minute ago, you know, you said a few different times that, you know, you had opportunities, you saw big, you, you got excited and you, maybe you went in this direction or that direction. 
any worth sharing? You know, how has Taproom evolved from when you launched to here, um, you know, fundamentally in the business? And what's the North Star? If it ha- is there an element of the North Star that you haven't articulated that helps you know to keep coming back to and to keep the ship moving in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, uh, the vision North Star is to uh, to provide a platform to enable beer brands, big or small, to reach their consumers, defined broadly, bars, restaurants, supermarkets, people at home, wherever they are, whenever they want to drink. Um, and that's the broad vision, right? Really a simple platform to make that happen. From day one, we started off in New York. I was mentioning that license. We started off doing everything ourselves with the intention being, let's figure out how to solve these problems ourselves so we can build software that actually solves problems for everybody else in the country. So we started off, I was packing boxes in a warehouse. We found, you know, this is 2019, we found a little brewery in Nicaragua called Nicaragua Craft Brewing Company that was selling these eight ounce little yellow cans called Nicaragua Panga Drops, and they were disgusting. Um, And we got a container of them shipped over here, imported here, put them in our warehouse in Brooklyn. And me and my brother and a friend of mine um, started hitting the streets. We just carried around these little panga drops and convinced bars and restaurants to start taking them on. Okay, so there were, that kind of worked. Then we made a Squarespace page for Nicaragua panga drops. And we said, hey, Nicaragua, buy them here. And we helped them. Nowadays, we, the brands do this themselves. But back then we were like, Nicaragua panga we're gonna run some ads for you on Facebook. And sure enough, some people ordered the Nicaragua panga drops in New York and we took the data from those people, it was like 10 people. And we went to some bars and we said, hey, look at these 10 people that just ordered Nicaragua Panga Drops. You should take this on. And that worked better. It was easier to sell in. Um, and that was the very beginning of Tavern. That's 2019. We started growing at a nice clip. We actually created a marketplace. We had like 20 brands that were working with us. We had exclusivity in New York. We built Squarespace pages for all of them. So they had all their own little websites. And then we said, okay, we have 20 brands. Why don't we just build a little marketplace in case people want to try all of them at once? We could sell a mix pack. And that was beginning of taproom.com, the marketplace. And that was the very uh, end of 2019. And then the pandemic hit in March of 2020, the taproom.com marketplace, which was always thought to be just a side kind of thing. It was a place to discover the brands that we were representing in New York just exploded. We became, we went from about 20 orders a day to about 800 orders a day in May uh, in like a 30 day period. Everybody wanted the beer from our website. A, it was well-priced. B, we were delivering very quickly to people at home. And C, because we were also their distributor, we had a ton of stock. If you remember during the pandemic, people were running out of everything because everything kind of shut down for a few months. There was one, there was a two-week period where the only place you could buy beer in New York City. Um, So there were all kinds of wild moments that we were like, this is really working. However, this taproom.com marketplace has now become 90% of our business by accident. And so that was a wild ride for a few months. And then coming around kind of July of 2020, August 2020, we went back to the vision. So let's reinvest in the sales to the bars and restaurants and supermarkets. Let's bring on some new brands to fulfill out the portfolio. And that had some rocky starts and stops. We thought the pandemic was ending. It did not. Bars and restaurants shut down again in like January of 2021. Um, We had to roll back down that side of the business a bit. And then we refocused on our core vision, which was let's make it very easy for these beer brands to sell online and finished out the tech stack to make it very easy for them to be powering their websites directly. Um, And that is what today we call powered by Taproom, but really it's just the bringing to life instead of using Squarespace or Shopify, let's 
build this platform to integrate directly into brands' websites. And let's also finish the software around our operations in New York, both as a pick-pack fulfillment center in Brooklyn, but also as a distributor. Let's finish that software and start rolling it out into different cities. So starting in October last year, for the first time ever, we started charging brands a monthly SaaS fee uh, in order to integrate into their website before we just did it for free. We built your Squarespace, you could sell from there, it's free, we distribute free. Uh, we started charging a SaaS fee and we thought it would kind of slow grow and it just blew up. We've been ahead of target every month since, uh, since October. Uh, we have now 165 brands paying $500 to $2,500 a month for the power to power their websites, both for sales in New York, to bars, restaurants, supermarkets, people at home, but also in 25 other cities across the country, if they're available, to be shipped out. So now we're on um, a fast growth pass, path. We uh, have a big target of 400 brands by the end of the year, which I'm told is very achievable. Um, and growing our SaaS revenue from those brands paying us is a primary objective because ultimately these brands just need the ability to sell online somehow. They like to do it quickly. They like to do it accurately. They want great customer service around that. But at the end of the day, they just need the power. They don't even care how much they sell. They just want the power. So one day they'll be able to have a massive blow up on TikTok or run a Super Bowl ad and have everyone come and order their product. And we're, we're finally kind of able to give them that power. So we're on that, that fun growth path now. But the next challenge is going to be, how do we fully replicate everything we've done in New York where we do it in-house? How do we do that in every single city in the country where we don't own the fulfillment centers? We might be the distributor, which would be great but we don't own the fulfillment center. So how do we make sure that they pick and pack like we do, use our software the way we do 100% of the time, take the brands on like we do, set pricing like we do. And those are the tweaks we're working on right now. Have you discovered any, on that last point, kind of Jedi mind tricks to convince these partners and other geographies to adopt your software and follow the kind of tap room way? Because I'm guessing, you know, they have their own, methods of operating like how, yeah. do, you, how do you get them yeah, to come around to wanting to do it this way we tend to try and identify ones that are already close to what we are as far as uh mindset or operators i use philadelphia a lot but uh, nick down there who we identified from stones brewing he very much sounded just like me or uh, one of my executives he had the same big vision for what it could be once we explained it to him and that level of excitement got him to really engage with the software, with the pick and pack operations, with taking on our brands. He's now also, Pennsylvania is an interesting state where he can do this. He's also the distributor for a lot of these brands now too. And he's just so engaged in the platform. He even changed the name of his store to Taproom PA. Uh, and those are the type of operators, I don't call it Jedi mind tricks, but in the end of the day, just like employees here, just like investors, um, our retail partners are just as much about our growth and about our vision. We're, we're not selling them there. They, they believe in what we're doing. And that's going to be paramount because the laws don't allow us to own these retailers. We can't own these beer stores. We have to partner with them by giving them our software and giving them brands to take on and, and having them work with us the way we'd like them to work with us. So they have to believe in it. They have to make money from it. And they have to grow with us just as big as an, an investor, an employee, or anyone else would at the company. Jason, back to Randy's question around the North Star you said provide a platform to enable beer brands, big and small. Um, I'm curious, like what's your message to small brands out there that may be saying, hey, I just want to stay on premise only. This sounds like this sounds hard, like a big lift. Is this relevant to them? And maybe, you know, and, and maybe these are 
brands that have like rabid consumers that love what they do, but they just don't want to move off premise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll I'll just take it New York. Let's say there's a small brewery in Ithaca, New York, where where you are, Wills, that sells mostly on premise. Um, And they've never really sold anything online. But the truth is they probably have a thousand people a week come by their brewery that like their, their product. They probably have an email list of 5,000 people, 10,000 people that they have engaged with at the brewery. And they may have people who've had it in a bar. They're like, oh, where do I get this from? Right. And by and large, those people today are probably going to this Ithaca Breweries website and being like, oh, I can go get it at the brewery. That's probably what's going on. Or maybe they have listed a couple stores they can get it from. And what we say, and this is what this is why we, you know, we have about a 45% closing rate within a week of the first meeting with these guys is all you have to do is send your product to our fulfillment center in Brooklyn, in the case of New York. If you don't have a distributor, we can be that for you. So we can do it in like five days. All you have to do is send your product there, put it in-house. We'll put it up on your website. 24 hours later, you're selling product from that website to all those people that are looking for it. Even if it's only a couple people a month, a few people a month, these are really engaged, loyal fans that you can now engage with and have them go to the brewery. Maybe you can send them to a bar in Ithaca that you just put on a tap handle and people will show up and drink it because you told them to. You told them how exciting it'd be. Maybe you can throw a party there with all the people now that have ordered your product and had it at home. And all it is is 500 bucks a month. It's $6,000. And most of these breweries, when they're $6,000 a year, most of these breweries, they're used to spending forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year on a person to go bar to bar and hand out samples. Or they're used to spending 10 grand at a beer festival to hand out uh, coasters and glassware to people walking by just to build a little awareness. Now, this is a this is a huge awareness tool that they have never really had the power to do. So even if they're not selling a ton, this is a, this is a marketing channel fully handled top to bottom, no work required, no customer service, no pick and pack, no fulfillment. You're gonna have almost no orders. All you have to do is send some beer to a fulfillment center. And all of a sudden you have a fully functioning e-commerce operation in your website is a dream for most of these guys. And that's and why we're doing very well at the long tail more than anything. Yeah. Are there perceptions that are the perceptions that they have founded that, you know, I just heard you're kind of making a case to me, but I know when the beer leaves my site, my margins plummet, but you, I heard this is just $500 a month, 6,000 a year, nothing more, nothing less. Like, are there perceptions, right? Like if I do this, I'm going to start losing a lot more on this beer or or is that not the case? $6,000 a year is the SAS fee they pass. Um, by and large, if you deliver it to our fulfillment centers, you're gonna you're not gonna get the, the full take because potentially a distributor takes a couple dollars and the retailers take a couple dollars out of every order. Not a ton, but, a, but an amount. You're not gonna make a ton on these orders. And, and that's just the reality. Um, and that's why we always explain in e-commerce generally today, I think, there's an article in the information today. It was like, it's the e-commerce winter. And a lot of this is because the margins have always been so bad in e-commerce. And this is just catching up now in all spaces. I think in beer, we're lucky enough that we can learn from the mistakes of the mattress and razor companies of yesteryears um, in that this should not be your primary sales channel. There's almost no way to make that work. This is a way for you to build consumer awareness, way for you to have people engage, have a loyal following who will do the higher margin projects with you as you grow the company. Um, and so that's, that's really what it is. You are not going to be making money on every sale, maybe a little bit, right? If you sell it to your distributor for a 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% margin, that's basically what you'll receive on each of these orders. You're not going to be getting the same 90% margin that you might be getting if you sell it right outside of your brewery, for instance. Got it. 
So let me ask you a question about the industry itself. You know, in the last decade, has seen tremendous growth in make in craft beer. It also has seen an RTD craze and the scaling of kombucha, which now we know you started. Um, what's the next ten years look like? Good question. The beer industry is probably at its worst it's been uh, since I've been involved in it as beer. The big new entrant has been hard seltzer that kind of came out of nowhere about three or four years ago. However, that is also now at its worst it's ever been. Uh, people thought it was going to keep going. It's peaked and now it's declining. I think it's being hit very hard. Most consumers won't even know the difference, but White Claw is very different than High Noon. You know, White Claw is a beer. Uh, it is a malt-based product. It's basically colorless beer, uh, whereas a High Noon is actually vodka and fruit. Uh, put in a can. It's much cleaner. It's a little bit healthier for you. It probably is less filling. It's more expensive and it sits on the shelves with their liquors. But in the end of the day, consumers seem to be gravitating more towards these, the spirit-based RTDs, which White Claw and the beer industry really created. It's kind of being eaten by them. So I, I think the beer industry is ready for a new movement. I think the next big thing is going to be light, natural, better for you beer products, lower calorie beer products, that don't take up as much space. The craft beer movement opened this heavy IPA, 400 calorie, juicy, milky, filly up in one one gulp type of type of market that was not that appealing to the majority of people. And they would do it because their friends were doing it. They were going to bars, but at the end of the day, people were like, I don't actually want that. I think you're going to see the beer industry really working towards something that has mass appeal, right? The, going back towards the Bud Light styles of of the 90s something where everything is going to be much more consumable, where the, where the margins are good, where people consume a lot of it, and it isn't going to be so reliant on local local beer stores or local uh, breweries to really introduce these products. They're going to be much more mass market appeal. Um, so the beer industry needs that wake up. It's coming. Um, but right now, it's about as down as it's ever been, um, at least I, since I've been doing it, um, relative to the spirits and wine. So I think the resurgence to come, these things go through trends over years. So I think you're looking for a big growth moment in beer over the next five, 10 years. I, I can't help but think that you're operating in an industry uh, that is incredibly hard to kind of break into. You know, people talk about, you know, the Tesla trying to create <laughs> a new car company. Um, and, you know, it seems like it's this, uh, tight knit world of a few Goliaths that, you know, can influence the market heavily just through their size. And here you are as this like David, uh, you know, against the Goliath on some level, maybe not, maybe you play nicer with them than we're painting a picture for what, like, what are the strategies or what's the, uh, What's your calculus around how to succeed in this market without revealing too much, maybe of like your secret sauce, like how do you compete in this space? Yeah, I mean, I think the what we always come back to is we're providing value for everybody. It is an insider's industry. It is an old industry full of incumbents who've been around a long time, who have masterfully monopolized their power across all channels, whether that be retail or distribution or even in the brewery like the brewery world, you know, 80% of beer is still run by three companies um, in the US. And the way we are really doing well is at every single stage, we can support them. Um, so we're non-threatening. You know, we, if you're a brewery, big or small, if you're a big one, we'll help you get online. Even if you have distributors everywhere, which you do, 
we can help you get online, get your product to our fulfillment centers, and you'll have the best online experience you've ever had. Um, if you're a big distributor, send us the brands that you work with, and we're going to give them a great online experience, and we'll give you back the data so you can help your sales guys sell better to all the bars and restaurants you already sell to. If you're a big distributor, and there are big ones. And if you're a big retail chain, right, partner with us, receive the orders from us, work with us, do inventory management. They're probably the ones that are less the most threatened by us is the big retail chains. Um, is that the Total Wines of the world, the ABC Liquors of the world, is that they missed an opportunity to really create a great online experience for the for brands. They can't as well. Like the GoPuffs just can't take money from brands. So they see what we're doing as if brands can sell from their own websites, why would people come to Total Wine to come find it? Especially the unique stuff stuff started to find. And, you know, that's kind of what we're playing in. So I think if, as far as it goes, we want them to partner with us and receive the orders. But for the ones that won't, um, they see us as the most threatening. Otherwise, the big distributors, big incumbents, big breweries, they're our friends. And, and we remain that way. And I think in any big industry like this, to be a, a software player, be a tech player in this space, you have to be able to play nice. I think we've already seen some examples. One of the biggest tech platforms in the alcohol space, Provi, uh, recently sued the two largest spirits distributors in the country that control almost 80% of all spirits sold in the country in R&DC and Southern for anti-monopolistic behavior. And the, the big question that comes up from that is what's going to happen to them now? If you can't work with the two largest spirits distributors in the country as a tech platform, they're, they're a marketplace for retailers to order from distributors. If you can't work with those two big distributors, what happens to you? And so we've always been, we've always taken the approach is, you know, we're here to support everybody. We want to build tools that make it work. We want to make sure the brands that we're bringing work for all the big guys. We do not want to get into some type of where they think we're competitive because we're not. We're really trying to add value where prior tech platforms were really just adding layer. They took, they took a 15% fee from all beer stores and liquor stores across the country to be another marketplace, right? It's just another layer on top of the industry. And if, if I was referencing Provi, what they did was, they're just another layer between retailers and distributors that they added in between taking a cut of everything. You're just adding layers. We're really trying to condense the layers, make them make it easier and faster for all the players in the industry to be able to get brands online, get brands selling, get people ordering instead of the other way, which is just inserting ourselves into a piece of the stack. I can't help but maybe hear a little bit of your uh, legal background here, which is like getting two parties to find some sort of compromise that is beneficial for both, right? Like, yeah, not, you know, it's not going to be, it's not perfect for either side, but man, I think that, you know, the best lawyers that I've seen operate are the ones that get both sides to an agreement that is in fact value add for each party. So, but maybe I'm reading into things too. No, much. that's a, that's a good insight. I, I wouldn't have maybe attributed it to that, but very much. Just the way you were just talking made it yeah. feel like, wow, we are, you know, like this, we're going to make it happen and all sides are going to feel good about it. Um, so as we're nearing getting towards the end, I'll ask you, you know, we've asked you the hard questions, put you on the hot seat a little, you're not a pound your chest guy, but if you had to articulate one or two things that you think you've done really well, um, you know, what, what are the best moves you've done since you launched Taproom? Um, unquestionably it's build a great team and hire the, the best team out there. I think, so that's definitely the best move we've ever made. I think the second best thing is, um, that we've, we've made some good decisions. You know, I, I think we've, the big decision being really turning towards the powered by platform, uh, last year was probably the best decision we made. Um, 
we had the option of instead hyper-focusing on being more of a distributor and fulfillment center in New York and keep it a little bit more New York focused. But the truth is our expansion has been amazing. Um, and I, I think that decision has, has really pushed us the right way. So, I, but primarily team, uh, you know, the, the best thing that's happened to me is surrounding myself with people that I trust that are smarter than I am, that know what they're doing more and that now can lead in ways that I certainly never could um, and can lead other people that will soon be replacing them or be above them. And that's definitely the, a culture that I love to be a part of. Jason, one last question for me. Um, and I think we've heard bits and pieces of this throughout this conversation. If you get tap room right and you look forward years from now, uh, you successfully execute on a, you know, your wildest dreams, your biggest vision, what have you created? How does the world look different as a result of Taproom's kind of yeah. success? I mean, the, the key is all alcohol brands, big or small, will be using our platform to sell online. Uh, and the reason they would be doing that is because now consumers across the country will have a great experience buying alcohol on the internet, as opposed to now where it's a very frustrating experience. And brands on their side will be able to reach those consumers in a, in a much bigger way without being hesitant, without being scared. So in my perfect world, the future of all alcohol is built online. You know, thousands of beer brands building themselves on the internet, finding people, finding their audience, finding what works, iterating on those products, and then pushing it out. You know, and that's, that's really, as Taproom expands, will be the, the big piece, the big missing piece to unlock all the online value for all brands, but also allow brands to get to bars, restaurants, supermarkets without having to go through a very slow and cumbersome and difficult process, right? Really being able to get them anywhere they need to quickly. So the world would be faster. Uh, the beer world would be faster, faster and more efficient. Am I hearing a bit of like, you know, similar to what it's like to shop on Amazon? Very similar. Yeah. I mean, the goal is to have an Amazon-like e-commerce experience for all, cons all people who order alcohol online. That's a big goal. The other side is allow brands to both get online and reach their retail customers quickly and easily without having to go through gatekeepers. You know, if you have those two things solved, the entire industry you know, unlocks value. And we talked, I talked a little bit about how the beer industry is struggling right now. This is the way that they can really unlock is wine and spirits are well behind on this world. And if we can get ourselves placed in a world where beer brands start popping off on our platform, I could really unlock, I was talking about low and natural brands that want to be mass produced, celebrity backed brands, influencer backed brands. We want to see uh, more VC backing towards digital commerce. So paid marketing values, TikTok brands, all of that can be unlocked once the power is there. Uh, and that's really the vision that we see for the, the next generation of beer brands. Jason, this has been cool. uh, enriching, educating, enjoyable. Uh, I've learned a bunch of things. Really appreciate you carving out this time today to talk about what you're building. Yeah. Thank you guys. I like how you asked none right. of the questions that you sent me ahead of time, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything, is there anything you had hoped or wanted intended to cover that we haven't? That I no, this is, this has been great. You guys are, you guys are the best. And uh, for all of you listening, TIA is the best investor out there. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was the whole purpose here. Entirely self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Dave, 
Thank you very much. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll cool. be talking to you very soon. Thanks again for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. You can find others like this on our website. Have a great day.